0: Welcome to Fully Yours, a podcast about food, the sacred, and ordinary moments of extraordinary belonging. This is Eva, and welcome to another episode of Fully Yours. We are in season four, and together with my friends Christy and Chloe from seminary, we're excited this season to be diving into the topic of homegrown and kind of looking at who are the ministers and the leaders and the communities and organizations that are doing really wonderful and profound work around um, food and theology in our specific context. The three of us live in three very different parts of the country, so we're just excited to be giving you a little bit more of an inside scoop in the three geographies um, that we make up. Um, so my guest today is the Reverend Wyvette Blair Lavallee. She is just an amazing um, minister and really passionate about food and theology Um, To share a little bit more about who she is, um, she discerned a call to preach um, when she was in her childhood, sitting in the pew at Lee Chapel AME Church in Dallas, um, which is where she grew up, um, and has continued to be a prophetic witness and a minister in the Dallas area and across the South. She's also a candidate for the Doctor of Ministry Program in Land, Food, and Faith Formation at Memphis Theological Seminary. Her work focuses on the intersection of food insecurity, famines, displacement, and the gentrification of black, brown, and indigenous peoples. She's presented her research at conferences, including the Political Network Conference at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and the MLK 50 Memphis Teach-In at the National Civil Rights Museum. She's also published some opinion pieces about food insecurity and food deserts. She's a licensed pastor and elder in the, in the Methodist Church. Um, she serves in ministry, teaching, and preaching. She's currently serving at First Christian Methodist Evangelistic Church in Dallas. Um, she has many other accolades and experiences to bring to the table. We'll be sure and share her full bio on our website so you can read more about her and her life. Um, but for now, Yvette, I just want to welcome you to our table today.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here.
0: So to start us off, um, just to dive into a little bit more about your story um, and your your bio and your geography. Um, what are some of the experiences that brought you to this work, to the work of food justice and the intersection of food and theology?
1: I think for me, it really starts back to when I was younger and I remember the area of West Dallas, that there was an area that had a lot of Hispanic families and a lot of families who had the corner stands, like the corner food stands, and they would sell um, food, and a lot of times my mother and I would stop and we would buy food. We got to be friends with a lot of the residents in that particular community. And it was simply just driving through there from time to time. And so when things began to change in that area and flooding hit, and then eventually over the years, gentrification hit, then I started thinking about what happened to those particular community residents. What happened that gentrification impacted not only their jobs, but it also impacted livelihood. So that's that's one aspect of it for me. The other aspect is I remember during my time at Perkins School of Theology at SMU here in Dallas that one of my professors always said or would ask the question to the students, how are you going to eradicate poverty? And so this particular professor, um, Dr. Theo Walker, would always talk to us about what are some reasons that people go hungry happening that there are systems in place that are causing this. And I remember that there was a project that we did in our class where we had to do pastoral anthropology. We had to p- pick a particular community in Dallas and examine what was happening in that area and look at the socioeconomic status of the area. And so I chose an area called Alameda Heights in the Oak Cliff Part of Dallas. And what I discovered during that pastoral anthropology is that there were probably about 20 small churches within a two mile radius, but there were no grocery stores. (laughs) And there were just like these corner convenience stores, these food marts. And so I wondered. Well, where are the residents in this particular community getting their food from? Like, where's the nearest grocery store? That's the second aspect for me. And then thirdly, what really, I think, sort of um, hit harder for me is we did another project called Harvest for the Community. And it was with one of the residence halls at SMU. I was serving as a resident community chaplain. And when we did this canned food drive and partnered with the city square, we then began to learn what I think is just unconscionable. And that is that Dallas is what I would describe as a tale of two cities. It's one of the richest cities, but it also has one of the highest poverty rates. Yes. And so when I began to find out that more than 85% of the students in Dallas were on the free or reduced lunch program because their parents simply could not afford meals for them. And then a lot of them were living in areas where there was no grocery store in their area. And I thought, okay, there is a trend that's happening here and there's something wrong. So from a theological standpoint, I started thinking about how, you know, obviously much of the Bible, especially in the Hebrew part of the Old Testament, is all about agriculture. And clearly, there are parts in the Bible that talks about land stewardship and talking about, you know, how God makes available all these plants for us to make sure that we would always have food to eat. And so if that is true, and since that is true, then what's happening that we don't have access? And so that really became, for me, sort of the the driving force of, of how I got into this and really started looking this intersection of food insecurity and displacement and gentrification. Because again, back to what I said about the residents in West Dallas, the Hispanic residents, not only was it a sense of um, the gentrification that happens, but it's also the displacement. So so when you have displacement, you have gentrification, and then you Mm -hmm. also have that they no longer can have their food stands that they're making their livelihood from, then we've got a problem. Right. 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 right.
0: Yeah. I think um, there's so much reckoning. So much of what you're getting at is this reckoning with the histories of the land and mm-hmm. many of those histories that have come centuries before um, the cities developed. And then that goes hand in hand with, with decisions that folks like city council people and developers and all sorts of players are are making about how the city is, um, well, frankly divided. <laughs> and, um, right. um, yeah. So I just appreciate that you, you're really dovetailing, not only sort of the, 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 physical and the geographical and the sociological things that are happening, but, but saying this is a, this is a deeply theological issue as well. Right. Um, so I wondered if you could share a little bit about where this meets the church for you. And um, I've, I've read in some of your work and in some a conversation that we've had about, you know, churches are really good at kind of a food charity model. And um, that work is, of course, to be commended. And like, how do we start asking questions and inviting churches to do work around really getting to these deep roots and histories and i think there are churches who have been doing that as well so i'm curious kind of what what stories come to mind um when you think about kind of the role of the church in this
1: yeah so when i think about the role of the church in this you are right in that there's a lot of um, good work that's being done i know that there are a lot of churches who have a food pantry and so they allow you know neighbors from the community to come in and to be able to have access to the food pantries to get food that they need for their families and so that's that's one aspect of it that i think is really good i know that particularly here in the dallas area where i am um, in the oak cliff area one of the churches friendship west baptist church There's a really great model and that is on every third Saturday, they have a harvest project where they have all this fresh produce that they make available to anybody who wants to come by and have some. So there's no requirements. You don't have to pay for it. You simply come and there is a bounty and you can take what it is that you need in order to feed your family. And so when i when when i think about that i think about how that is a really good thing to do they also take the next step in actually having a garden there at their church and so that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that i think that the faith community can really think about when you think about the church what does the one thing that the church have a lot of they have a lot of land and so there is a lot of unutilized land so in addition to just the building itself the church being there and any additional buildings that they might have um the parking lot maybe there's an area for children to have a playground but there's also this other unused or underutilized land and what I'm starting to see is this trend with churches, not necessarily here in the Dallas area, because it hasn't really caught on yet, but there's this sense of how do we take what we are good stewards of, and that is stewards of the land, and utilize that land in such a way that we carry out this mandate, this biblical mandate of being able to feed people. And so as I I've, as, as I've done some work um, done some studying and have looked across the country um, here in the South, um, looked at what's happening at some churches in Tennessee, looked at what's happening at some churches in Memphis or I'm sorry in um, Mississippi but also looking at what the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown does in Baltimore, Maryland with the Black Church Food Security Network. Mm-hmm. And that is just simply taking the land that you have and starting a community garden. So those are some things that I think any church that has the land availability can consider doing. I think it's something that beyond just having a food pantry But it's also giving people a sense of pride and reconnecting them to the land, because I think we've gotten so far removed from what it means to be at one with creation, right? I mean, God created us, God created, you know, everything in nature. And so we've gotten so far removed from that of what it means to just really dig your hands deep into the soil what it means to actually be out there and planting and digging and reaping and sowing and harvesting. And so I think that as you know we move forward, those are some things that the, the church can really think about.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I love um, just you bringing out that we are stewards of the land. And mm-hmm. um, I was revisiting some kind of eco-theology a couple of weeks ago just doing some reading and the author I was reading, I, I forget I forget the name now, but they talked about how our God's first commandment to us is to till and to keep right? Um, and how we have forgotten s- just the way that our lives are organized and we have just made so many other things a priority and um, I think it's just so powerful when churches take that seriously and it, it can be a really creative and community building effort, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think also getting kind of circling back to um, this idea of displacement. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your book about Ruth and um, just some of the layers related to to that wonderful story.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the book of Ruth has always been one of my favorite stories. And during that process with um the candidacy in the methodist church where before you get ready to go before the board of ordained ministry you have to pick a book of the bible and do like a full bible study on it develop a bible study such that you could pass it on to somebody else to be able to teach it so i did that but out of that it grew into more of a book So the book is called Being Ruth, Pressing Through Life's Struggles with Fearless Faith. And one of the things that really draws me to Ruth is at the beginning of that story, it starts with, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So immediately we see that something has happened that caused the people to be food insecure. I mean, it's, it's, it's right there and when i think about that elimelech naomi and their two sons had to leave from bethlehem and go to another place go to moab they were displaced so anytime that you have to pack up your family and leave because your food insecure, there's, you know, there's, there's displacement that happens. Mm -hmm. And so I think that story for us becomes a great model because it asks the question of what happened that caused there to be a famine in the land and the domino effect that happens with that. So there's a famine and then there's the displacement, you've got to move your family from what's familiar to you. And I think if we look at it through today's eyes and think about what that means, not only are you having to pack up and move, but you're leaving your faith community. You're leaving an area that you've come to love. You're leaving your friends. And so when you think about people who are impacted today, by gentrification, by displacement, and what it means for them when they have to leave, then I think that gives us a, a whole different perspective of, of looking at the story of Ruth. And then, of course, we know that um, you know once once another tragedy hits, so you've got layer after layer of tragedy. You've got the family, and of course, the Lillimalek. In the family, when they get to Moab, the dies. The two sons die. Um, You've got got Naomi at this point of deciding, okay, now it's time for me to go back to Bethlehem, and she encourages her two daughters-in-law to go back to their homes, but of course, you know, out of the two of them, Ruth and Orpah, then Ruth is the one who decides that she'll go with Naomi to Bethlehem. And the beautiful thing about that story is that immediately we see that Ruth wants to be able to go and work, and she goes and she leaves in the
0: field mm.
1: and I think just even that sense again of reconnecting to nature of reconnecting to the earth of just, of just what it means knowing that the land is an available resource for us and the land is an available resource that if we start honoring the land and being the stewards of the land then we can not only cultivate and grow crops also helps us in a deeper sense of cultivating a deeper relationship
0: with God. Yes. Um, and I, I love um, and you, you said this when we first started talking but the Bible, so much of the Bible is this agrarian text. Right. This collection of agrarian stories and I just, I love when people bring that out and kind of frame a book through that lens. I think it just, it lends so many, um, just powerful images and and invitations. Um,
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, one of, one of the things I do with the book because I also want to make it relevant and applicable to today and highlight some women throughout history. I also include information in there, like a little story on Dolores Huerta who of Mm -hmm. course worked with Cesar Chavez, and just the work that she did with migrant workers and with farmers, and you know how how her activism led to led to um, helping the farmers to be able to. Be sustainable, helping them to overcome some of the inequalities and the injustices that they were dealing with. And so I think she also becomes a model for us and for this generation to say that there are things that we can do to help our local farmers. You know, I often mm-hmm. wonder how many of us have ever even seen a farmer in real life and have had a conversation with
0: yeah. a farmer.
1: You know we've 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 gotten so so far removed from that. I want to um, share real quickly that part of my doctoral work that I do at Memphis Theological Seminary is we actually go and work on the land. So it's mm-hmm. not that we're just sitting in class all day. I actually just finished up one of our intensives and we had a chance to go to the Mississippi Delta.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, Mississippi is one of the poorest states. It's also one of the states with the highest rate of food insecurity. And at the same time, one of the highest rates of um, malnutrition. One of the things that I was really glad about being able to go to the Mississippi Delta is to connect with farmers and to see the work that they were doing. And to just know that there are people that are still tilling the land. They're still utilizing the land to be able to plant and to have this beautiful harvest. And when you see all this beautiful produce that's produced and it's made available to the elderly, it's made available to elementary students. We even visited a fifth grade class where students have a garden at their school and they're learning at an early age What it means to be good stewards. So I think those kinds of practices are a reminder for us in our busyness and this sense of, um, you know, having food delivered and, you know, all of that. It's fine and great. But it's a reminder to us to stop and pause and to think about the farmers, to think about the ones who are out there working and mm-hmm. making this food available to us when we go to the grocery store. So um, I hope that, you know, people will begin to look in their areas and more than just the occasional farmer's market that there might be, you know, once or twice a month. I hope that there will be a bigger push that says we need to make sure that we're supporting our local farmers.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's so um. That's so wonderful that part of your program is just getting in the dirt. That's just so important. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so really li- so life giving. Yeah.
1: It is. <laughs>
0: um, well, I wanted to ask, um, just sort of along the same lines, what are what are some other dynamics where food kind of meets a lot of these issues of. Um, power and economic and social racial justice um, that you think that people ought to be paying more attention to and if there's some specific ways you see those playing out in Dallas and in the south you've already talked a lot about um, kind of some of the dynamics happening in Dallas but was curious if you had any other examples or yeah just other threads related to kind of food and justice and theology that um, you'd like to just make us aware of?
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to Dallas, um, Memphis is actually another place where the food insecurity rate is really high. And you see a lot of food injustice happening. You see areas that are declared as food deserts, meaning that there is not a full-scale grocery store within a one mile radius of a community. And so it means that that particular community doesn't have access to healthy food that is affordable, that is culturally and diet specific. One of the injustices that happens is oftentimes city leaders will give developers tax incentives to build in certain parts of the city and when the marginalized neighborhoods of the city don't have a grocery store and they are declared a food desert or as the term that food activist karen washington introduced food apartheid Mm -hmm. because it's really more about systems that are in place so it's really more about this power struggle it's it's really more about understanding that food is political and so when, when that happens, when, when city leaders make a decision that says, well, we're gonna let this north side of the, the city have a grocery store and maybe it's a Whole Foods or maybe it's an HEB. And then the south side of the city doesn't have a grocery store or maybe they just have a corner market, then that's, that's an injustice. That's how you know that, that food is political. I think also when you run into the sense of um, the people who work as food workers, a lot of times they are not making livable wages. And when you think about the sense of, here's a person who's preparing food, who's serving food, but they can't even afford the very food that they are providing to you, that's an injustice as well and so i think when we look at that again i'm always pushing for how can we be advocates to do what's right how can we be advocates and show up at city council meetings and city planning commission meetings when these budget hearings are happening i think you know that's that's another area that we can share with members in our congregations because eventually they're going to be affected by it in some sort of way. And looking at how can you dismantle those kinds of systemic structures of injustice and when there's discrimination against one group of people based on socioeconomic status, based on class, based on race, it's like we have to be prophetic voices and we have to say something about it.
0: Yes. Yeah. That is, that is so important. And I really appreciate you bringing up Karen Washington's phrase food apartheid, which I've also read a little bit on your website too, and or an mm-hmm. article referencing you. And, um, I was so, it was just so thought provoking and such an epiphany, um, to come upon that word when I was doing some of my own research and, um, Leah Penniman, who founded Soulfire farm, mm-hmm. um, oh, she's just such an inspiration. Um, she, I think also uses that term to talk about how, you know, deserts are naturally occurring places mm. in the world. Right. Um, that, you know, the USDA who has coined this phrase food deserts, they're, they're talking about, deserts that are created by humans because of so many of these, um, these power dynamics. And um, I think that just offers such an important shift in thinking about how we deal with food security, that it's not just about kind of going in and dropping in um, food that is really decontextualized from what's going on. I mean, of course, we want to provide food and, and feed people where, where they need it. But also, we have to really think about and peel back the layers That are contributing to food insecurity in the first place and um yeah so just thank you so much for um, using that phrase and kind of drawing that to our attention i feel like that's sort of an emerging um an emerging and important phrase and shift away from even talking about food deserts is really this is this is food apartheid um
1: right right yeah because I, i think language matters and I think it helps mm-hmm. us to really change the narrative and start addressing on what the core issues are that's causing yes. this because as long as we say food desert you know that people aren't really bothered by that term but when they hear the term apartheid it's like whoa what does that mean and what are you yeah. really saying so yeah it's one yeah. of those that really is a is a is a um <laughs> cause for pause so to speak
0: mhm mhm well thank you so much for um just sharing and I know this is just a snippet of um, (laughs) what you are passionate about and the work that you're doing. And I just so appreciate that you're doing it. And um, I could go on and on and on about this topic. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I wanted to just close with something we like to ask all of our guests, which is, um, is there a a story of food or a meal um, or a recipe from your life that is um, has particular meaning for you? would like to share.
1: Yeah, actually a meal that I really love that has particular meaning for me and relates um to connects me to God is my mother always made salmon croquettes. Mm. And I would watch her in the way that she would just use her hands right to gather the flour, the meal together, the bits of salmon and just sort of this back and forth of padding it together and forming it and shaping it. And it makes me think about the earth. It makes me think about the Mm -hmm. sense of being shaped and formed and padded by God for the work that God calls each of us to do. And just Mm -hmm. that delicate back and forth being in in your hands and and knowing that you can use your hands in that way to serve someone else and to to serve food in that way, so that that has always been one of my favorite meals. And you know, as as I'm at this age now, thinking back to being younger and the first time of having that meal and watching my mother prepare it. It just it just always makes me think of this sense of that that closeness to God and again just just being in the hands and being shaped and, and
0: molded. Mm, I love that. That's a beautiful image. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, um, thank you so much for your time and again for um, just opening up so many of these different layers. I one thing I say often is when you start pulling at the thread of food, you just run into so many other layers and threads. And, um, so just thank you again for your witness to food justice and for the work that is being done and that remains to be done. And, um, yeah. And thank you for sharing the, The story of your mother with the salmon croquettes i just love that
1: (laughs) thank you and and thank you for this platform and for the work that you're doing through this to be able to share with people so i just appreciate the opportunity um to be one of your guests
0: (laughs) well we're it's it's our joy and we're so grateful (laughs) thank you thank you so much for joining us at the table we would love to hear from you Let us know what you think by leaving a rating on iTunes. Or if you have show ideas, comments, or just want to reach us directly, send us an email at fully.yours.podcast at gmail.com. For today's show notes, our blog, and more, be sure to check us out at fullyyourspodcast.com. Huge thanks to Steve Dry and Catalyst of Harvard-Epworth United Methodist Church based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for their generous grant funding of this podcast. Shout out to the talented Joel Adams and Melody Stanford martin for producing the original song featured in this podcast. Also to Melody for our gorgeous logo design and to our dream team for keeping us grounded and inspired. Until next time, we are fully yours.